0: You have reached the voicemail box of
1: Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen Saint-Felix. This week, we issue a response to the nation's second coming of MTV News article, discuss Trevor Noah's interview with Tommy Lahren, review the Childish Gambino album Awaken My Love, and close things out with a feedback question. Leave a message.
0: Hey, Ira, do you remember when Kylie Jenner said that 2016 would be the year of realizing things? Well, last week, I guess we realized that we have haters at the Nation magazine. Please call me back. I am dying to finally talk out this article with you.
1: Madam Doreen.
2: Yes, young activist. (laughs) <laughs> yes, identity politician.
1: <laughs> um I'd better not catch the nation in the streets.
2: <laughs> Listen. Um, I Are you still in shock because I think I'm still reeling a little bit?
1: I am actually like flabbergasted, mostly because even though I like took a weekend to decompress and forget about this article. Um, I actually went to Palm Springs for the weekend for a friend's birthday, swimming in the pool, out in the desert, sipping some cocktails. It seems like new people keep discovering the article and Mm -hmm. sending me a message saying how sorry they are that it happened. So I keep being reminded of it.
2: Yeah, the same thing has been happening to me. All right, so I guess we just need to summarize this bullshit. Bullshit is the only word I can really use to describe what happened to us last week. Basically, an article was published by The Nation magazine, which is allegedly a left-leaning publication titled The Second Coming of MTV News. And it is really an opinion piece that masquerades as a reported piece, considering that nobody at MTV News was really contacted um, by the writer. But basically this writer named Wei Chu, who works at The New Yorker, wrote an article saying that MTV News was commodified liberal trash, and she decided to call out three black writers employed by MTV News, and their names are Ira Madison III, Ezekiel Kwaku, who is a great friend of this podcast and a politics writer, and myself, Doreen St. Felix. And she goes on to say that we are young activist writer types who are entrenched in identity politics and who don't have resumes and don't really have qualifications and that we use, quote-unquote, well-oiled brands to stand in for a intellectual perspective. The article concludes by essentially arguing that we should not be hired in the first place. So that's what happened to us last week.
1: Yeah, Um, I first found out about this article because you tweeted about it, and you were like, you were tired, you wrote that you were tired of being referred to as an activist Mm -hmm. writer, which people on the internet like to use to call any black person who's written about Mm -hmm. race, because I guess, you know, writing about yourself means that you are an activist.
2: Yeah. In their logic. And you also tweeted about your qualification. So basically, beyond just the tone of the article, which I think was very malicious and very aggressive, the article has some really bad factual errors within it. And one of them is the idea that myself and Ira, like, don't have any qualifications. Ira has a master's degree from NYU. Ira, you were at BuzzFeed. You were at New York Magazine and you tweeted that. And I thought that sometimes when racist people (laughs) write hit pieces or like make up these convoluted arguments about why diversity at corporations is not done with the right intentions, what they always erase is that often the people who get hired by corporations are the elite of POC in black communities, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have all of these qualifications and it's I think it does a disservice to make us um, the figureheads for the majority of black writers out there right now, because I will always recognize that I have privilege, you know, and that, yeah, I got scholarships to go to these schools, but I still went. And so I think just the audacity to not only misrepresent the work that you do and the work that I do and our qualifications, but then to kind of throw every other kind of black writer under the bus in the process. It's just, you know, I think this writer, I think this writer has a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you went to Brown. So when she talks about, you know, Ivy League writers who have an intellectual perspective, and then she says that, you know, we just have popular Twitter accounts. I'm like, um, first of all, you've never read anything that we've written before. And you couldn't even Google us. Mm -hmm. A quick Google would find out what school you went to, Mm -hmm. what school I went to. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, because... We talk so many times about how, as a person of color, you often have to be twice as good to get a job at a media company that's not black owned, you know? You can't just be fresh out of school and someone's going to take a chance on you, Yeah, you know, to get to New York Magazine, to get to MTV News, to get to Lenny Letter, to get to... The New York Times, which you've written for, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to have the qualifications. No one's just going to find you being funny on Twitter and be like, hey, let me give you a salaried position, you know, like this isn't a fucking job for the Big Bang Theory. (laughs) Someone's (laughs) not like, oh my God, you could tell jokes. Why don't you come write for this TV show? Which by the way, happens to white men a lot. Um, And it happens to white men in the media sometimes, too. It does not happen to people of color.
2: And I just speaking of that term, people of color, I think where the article goes from being just, you know, poorly reported and poorly written to having a malicious intent in my opinion, is the fact that the writer is Asian-American and the writer does a lot of the quote-unquote, what she would describe as identity politics writing for other outlets, right? If you Google her clips, which there aren't that many of them, but the ones that do exist are all about, you know, something in her culture in the way that like white people would define it, right? And then I think for her to not acknowledge the ways that she experiences that kind of critique and then to just like lob them all on us. It's just like, talk about, talk about intellectual dishonesty. You know what I mean? And then furthermore, you are getting on us and saying that we're not real journalists and that we don't have real skills and we don't have real reporting. You didn't report this piece. You don't have any facts in it. Anything that you do have is is hearsay. There's nothing in this piece that really stands or could pass more than you know, a once-over. I mean, to talk about the editor, I can't even begin to speculate about whatever was going in their mind because the editor chooses not to make themselves known publicly. But the piece is not even an ex- a good example of good writing. So if you're gonna come at writers, you have to be so pristine in your writing, your reporting has to be on point. This is the example that you are putting out to the public and arguing is better than others, right? So how dare you come at us half-assed like that? Like if you're going to come for me, like be ready. I shouldn't be able to eviscerate your piece in one tweet. That's embarrassing.
1: Yeah, it's so much of an opinion piece. Like first of all, the writing's not good. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, I'm not trying to be rude. Actually, I am trying to be rude. It's a badly written piece. You know, like the editor isn't making themselves known because one, the piece is racist. And two, they didn't even do a good job editing it. So there's that to take into consideration. Plus the fact that, like you said, all of this is hearsay. And it it sounds like she talked to one disgruntled writer. And mm-hmm. was like, oh, here's an article that I can write. You know? It's like, thinking of how many people try and write pieces to take down media companies, I was just like, Heffa, you could have never gotten a job at Gawker. <laughs> you know? Oh my because God. Because when Gawker wrote a piece about a media company, that shit was researched. Mm-hmm. And it was on point. And fact-checked. And it had a message, even when it was like Sam Biddle and his um, everlong vendetta against <laughs> Jonah Peretti and <laughs> Gawker trying to take down BuzzFeed. The pieces, at least, you know, were real pieces. Mm-hmm. This is this is like a game of telephone, you know, and I'm like, I don't even know who she spoke to, but that person better not catch me in the streets either.
2: <laughs> and I mean, I think the reason we agreed that we wanted to like officially talk about this on the podcast is because the problem is bigger than just this one writer. It's bigger than The Nation, which is a very small, underread publication. And it's bigger than the three of us. This idea pervades our industry, and our industry is one of the least professional industries on the face of the planet. People don't know how to keep their feelings at home. They don't know how to keep their emotions at bay. And this is a real problem. And I think for anybody who's listening to our podcast that either is a journalist or is interested in entering this industry, I would say you have to be braced for this problem. And when you would see it happening, you need to stop it dead in its tracks. You need to speak out against it because we can't have, especially in the era of Trump, we can't have malice masquerading as journalism. I, I couldn't help but feel like this attack was uh, like a prophecy of what's to come, right? You know, if a left-leaning publication is putting out these screeds against identity politics and is using a person of color to do so, how the hell are we going to fight against Breitbart, you know? Like, how the hell are we going to fight against this administration? So I would really invite... Anybody who has power, anybody who wants power, anybody who's thinking about power in media and in writing, who is listening to this podcast, to really think about what the fuck they're doing, think about the words that they're using, and think about what power structures they're reinforcing by using those words.
1: And if you're really considering who is hiring people for diversity issues and, you know, people not having the right qualifications for the job that they're doing. Maybe look at the fact that you wrote a six paragraph article about taking a train to Charlottesville and the Paris review paid you for that.
2: Oh my God. But seriously, like Wei has not reached out to us. The nation has not reached out to us. I think, you know, the fact that this piece went viral and that unanimously we were supported And moreover, the argument that identity politics even means anything was also taken down. I think like you all owe it to yourselves before you even owe it to us to speak out and issue a statement. But that's on you.
1: It's actually been very cowardly, if I can say that, because she issued this article that was a takedown of three writers in a really cruel way. And she had the nerve to put on her Facebook page that she was taking a little social media break, you know? And so, like, you throw this bomb at people, and then, I don't know, maybe she's taking another train to Charlottesville, midnight train to Georgia, wherever the fuck she went. She decided to get off the internet, and these people always do that, you know? I'm thinking about Nico Hines um, earlier this year, That Daily Beast reporter who wrote that piece about gay athletes at the Olympics and basically outed some people in this cruel, you know, homophobic hit piece that he wrote. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been online since the Olympics. You know, these people use their publications to attack other people and then they sort of flee and don't own up to the consequences of their writing.
2: Whereas we have to sit there and we have to, you know, be reminded over and over again about the piece. And for all the kind words that people have sent us, we really appreciate them. You know, the downside to that is that every time you tweet us about it, we're reminded about this piece, right? And we're just trying to do our goddamn job. So it's just like, how dare you Throw that stone and then go inside your brick house and then we have to be the ones to be dealing with like both the fallout and all the other effects of it. It's just like, you know, stand in your shit, as I tweeted. Going forward, if you're going to use that word, you need to really think about what you mean. And chances are what you mean is something racist. And if it is, then you should use, you should describe what your feelings are. You should have to look your disgusting racist feelings in the face as opposed to using the signal, you know, that you know will like go viral and get black Twitter angry or whatever. Like you should have to use your words.
1: Just write that these niggas writing about fried chicken. That's all that you (laughs) want to say. And now here we are, November of 2016, with President-elect Donald Trump and a crowd of misfit babies formed from every failed movement, all sandwiched together to become the largest group of whiners the country has ever seen. All right. Pretty much covers it, doesn't it, Trevor? Quick question. Like, why are you so angry? I'm actually not that angry. It's just there's things...
2: So last week, TNT, a new interracial couple made up of Tommy Laren. And Trevor Noah had a beautiful little talk on Trevor Noah's show, The Daily Show, and people were mad about it. I was mad about it. People were, you know, aghast at the idea that Tommy Laren had to go on Trevor Noah's show only to have him softball her and quote unquote have a conversation with somebody who is a white supremacist. And, you know, a lot of black people predicted after watching that episode that. Tommy was going to become even more mainstream than she is. Because she's not as famous as like a lot of the other Trump surrogates. And that's exactly what happened. A New York Times profile came out right after, you know, she's been hanging out with Charlemagne and it's a mess. But I would say in this situation, I'm more annoyed with Trevor. Because he should know better. Yes?
1: You know, I am actually going to take a different stance on that. I liked the interview. And I am actually glad that he did it because i feel like tommy hasn't been mainstream but people know who she is uh daily show viewers know who she is because one he's done segments on her before and her stupid um <laughs> rants Um, she's so angry Uh, he's done pieces on her rants about black lives matter about gay people you know he has talked about her before so his audience already knows who she is and second the daily show is mostly watched by like millennials who are already online and i think if you're online you know who tommy is you know like I have so many gay friends who use her as memes at this point because she's Mm -hmm. just so ridiculous that it wasn't surprising to me that she showed up on the show because I feel like in this new sort of media era, it doesn't make sense for The Daily Show to be attacking Fox News anymore. You know, I feel like they need to go to the other people who are boiling up. Online, you know, we talked before about how we're going to fight Breitbart, like, you know, how are we going to make people aware of this girl, um, if not an interview with her? And I mean, the New York Times profile came out a few days after, but it's not like they wrote it up immediately after her interview with Trevor, like that profile was already in the works, probably. And it ended up just being. Kismet, you know, her publicist probably like planned this shit to be happening at the same time.
2: I just I don't think that Trevor Noah. Here's the problem for me. Tommy Lauren goes on the show and she's like as charismatic as Trevor Noah is, if not more charismatic. And I don't think that that is what The Daily Show is supposed to be. Right. Trevor Noah, to me, the reason why I have a problem with the way he hosts that show is that he doesn't have a compelling worldview. He kind of just like limps and reshapes himself to be in concert with whatever guest comes in, right? And now he's using this as an opportunity to write like an op-ed about how we need to have conversations or whatever. And it's like, well, Trevor, that might be your opinion, but your opinion is not based in American history. Your opinion is based in your idea of what happened in South Africa. And I just think, like, fundamentally, he's just not that informed. And so when, like, a Tommy Laren comes on his show, I don't feel like he knows the right way. He's supposed to approach her as an avatar for a certain community of viewers, you know?
1: yes but can i also offer that do we think it's fair that trevor noah has been tasked with sort of now being the voice of all black people just by the virtue of you know the nightly show not being on anymore and there being not a single other black person with a late night talk show
2: for me it's not blackness for me it's more of what John Stewart did like I would never I don't think anybody would have said that John Stewart was a voice for black people but he was a voice for this kind of like virulently liberal position that wasn't really
1: moderate I mean way. white people would argue that he was sort of the voice for black people because white people never really seem to care about black issues until <laughs> John Stewart That's went true. on a rant about them I don't know I feel like for me um Jon Stewart used to interview um, people like that all the time. You know, I mean, if we're really being real, I don't see a difference between Tommy and Megyn Kelly. You know, I think Megyn Kelly uses more dog whistles in the way that she has racist rhetoric on her shows. Like, but she said shit like, you know, Santa's white. Um, and allows people with dangerous views to be on her show unchecked um, in the way that Tommy just sort of comes out and says, I think Black Lives Matter is the new KKK. Whereas Megan, you know, will do something and be like, hmm, these Black Lives Matter protesters seem to be a bit dangerous. What do you think? You know, I feel like... (laughs) All of the Fox people that used to be on Jon Stewart's show did the same shit that Tommy does. But I will say that I appreciate Trevor Noah while Jon Stewart's out here um, spewing his nonsense.
2: Yeah, good point.
1: Because Jon Stewart was the Bay when he was on Daily Show, um, but now... <laughs> um, He's in the news being ridiculous. Being yeah, like, I mean, don't call I all even. Trump voters racist, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And people paid a price under Obama. And I'm like, why don't you take your bearded Unabomber looking self now and like, go take a nap? <laughs> I thought you were retired. Oh, my God.
2: I mean, given the choice between what Noah is saying and those Stuart comments, I agree. I'll take Noah any day. But Tommy, Tommy can go bathe in that tub of peroxide that she has to put herself in once a week to keep up that fake blonde hair. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So Childish Gambino has a new album out. And if you don't know who that is, that is Donald Glover's rapper alter ego Mm -hmm. who lives on Sesame Street. (laughs) His new album is called Awaken My Love. Uh, I said my love because there is an exclamation point after love (laughs) in the title. So you know this is about to be one of those like neo-soul black, um, just funky, psychedelic albums because black people only put exclamation points at the end of their albums (laughs) when you're about to get some Roots Andre 3000 shit.
2: Oh my God. (laughs) I am dying. Yes, that is a perfect description of this album. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it. I hope you guys don't think I'm a hater. Because last week I didn't like the other album that we talked about, which was The Weeknd. But, but here's but the thing. But you love You here's, love
1: Atlanta. We can admit that we love Donald Glover's TV show. One of the best TV shows. And the
2: I year. think the reasons why I love Atlanta are absent in Awaken My Love. Atlanta, to me, why it's so smart is because Donald Glover, his character Earn is not in every episode. It's a very um ensemble performance like some episodes you know are just focused on Paperboy who is the rapper character and you don't everybody else is just kind of like off to the sides and their performances while like amazing and brilliant and funny are in the service for telling his story for that episode and I felt like Awaken My Love doesn't have that sort of originality. Clearly, Atlanta has a lot of source materials like Louie, like High Maintenance. You know, there's so many shows that it's based after. And you wrote really well about how Atlanta kind of subverts the black sitcom expectations in the 21st century but awaken my love doesn't really take its inspirations to another level and its inspirations include george clinton parliament funkadelic you know harry nelson there's some d'angelo like you said on it there's some andre but it really just sounds like he's doing karaoke versions of all those people it doesn't sound like you know he took it to the next level
1: yeah i'm actually not a fan of the first half okay. of the album once we get to once we get to Redbone, I like the rest of the album. I love Redbone, California, Terrified, Baby Boy, The Night Me and Your Mama Met. Like those are good songs to me. But as a whole, it doesn't quite gel. I think you're right in sort of the idea that he's not really living in this period. Yes. You know? For one He hasn't really had any inclinations towards funk Mm -hmm. in the first place. So the album sort of came out of left field. It's sort of, in a way, like Lady Gaga's Joanne. Oh,
2: that's an interesting comparison.
1: You know, it's just sort of putting on sort of this persona for an album and just feeling, you know, like, this is what I'm presenting for the world today. I like Joanne a bit better because I feel like Lady Gaga just, you know, she commits to that shit (laughs) with so much conviction that you almost sort of believe that, you know, she grew up with Shania Twain and, you know, is hanging out at the Grand Ole Opry and, you know, roasting pig feet in her trailer. But Donald Glover has never really seemed to me like he's interested in this genre before. Uh, Which isn't to say that he's not interested in black shit. Um, He does that very well, you know? And I think he knows a lot about black music and wanted to sort of honor it. But I would rather he do that in his hip-hop lane than sort of this. Um, Because it's a nice album to write to, you know? It's a nice album to get high to and, like, chill out in your room. But... I'm not really checking for it all the way. And you were right in your, you read a review of it, which is now on MTVnews.com. And you compare it to Bruno Mars's 24 karat magic. And I think that's an apt comparison because Bruno Mars is completely committed to this genre. You yeah. know, he knows it inside and out. He gives it to you with his own flourishes and sort of makes it contemporary in a way that this album doesn't feel completely Mm -hmm. contemporary. If you told me that this album had come out, you know, in the mid two thousands, I would believe you.
2: The only thing that is strikingly contemporary on it is there's a little auto auto tune, but it was not, enough of it to feel like he was doing a riff on classic funk. But that's all to say I'm into him being into this genre, right? Like I want him to discover new ways to make music. And that's something that he's been steadily doing from Camp, which is a horrible album, to Because the Internet, which is like much better. And this album is clearly the best of his albums, but I don't think it's the best music that Glover can make. Maybe he just needs to like take a break. It almost seems like it would be impossible to make an in, an amazing show like Atlanta but then also still have time to like make an album. It's just like, dude, you just need to slow it down a little bit and give the music more time because I think if he really does have the energy for it, his music career could be on par with his acting and writing career.
1: Right. Um I agree because um you know, Lena Dunham made a really great show, Girls, and then when she released that pop album, I was like, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> Lena Dunham has no pop album. I'm just being ridiculous. But um, I know you you're are. right. He's put so much into Atlanta. I'm like, were you working on this at the same time? I would almost have preferred if he had made original music for the show Atlanta and then released that album. Ooh.
2: That's a good idea. I mean, FX has already been emailing, you, right? So, <laughs>
1: um, yes, I did get a lovely note from the president of FX about my um, so maybe you should CC Atlanta.
2: him about some so- soundtracks for season
1: two. <laughs> I mean, I would love that. You know, it's just like when people try and focus on more than one thing at the exact same time it can get a little wonky. Like, we could all tell when Shonda Rhimes was too busy at some points during Scandal because you would watch it and you would be like, what the fuck are you doing, Olivia Pope? And then when she came back to Scandal, it got good again.
2: We just need, we need more, we need more Glover in the Gambino.
1: Closing out our episode with some feedback this week. Feedback is our segment where we invite our listeners to call in and leave us a message. And we will give you advice on love, life, or what products Tommy Laren uses in her hair to make her look like a dead Barbie.
0: Hi, Ira and Doreen. Um, First off, I love the podcast and it is a highlight of my week every week when it comes out um my question is about um so the situation is that i am um, a bisexual woman and i live in a town in a kind of rural area and there's not a lot around here um as far as like other cities it's kind of like Three hours in any direction to get anywhere else. Um, and it's not a very accepting place. Like, people drive around with Confederate flags in the back of their truck kind of place. Um, and they had a gay bar once, but it got shut down after protests. So it's kind of like a time warp here. Um, and I know that it's like a privilege to, in, in a certain sense, it's a privilege to be by because I am straight passing and Um, I don't have to out myself unless I want to. Um, But right now I am making plans to leave um, and move elsewhere to a larger city and go to grad school. Um, But that's not going to happen for a while. So I just basically uh, do you have any advice for finding yourself in a situation where you want to explore more of this part of your identity? Um, but not really having a safe environment to do so. Um, I'm out to some of my friends here, but some of them I am not. They're super conservative Christians, and they would not um, be down with that. So it's kind of like I have a choice between being true to myself and um, exploring these connections um, and this part of my sexuality or just stifling it for another year or two or however long it takes me to move. And um, I don't really know which direction I want to go in or if I do want to go into exploring myself more and um, exploring being with women if it's something – I don't want to have to hide it because I think that's stupid. And if it helps any for context, I'm in my mid-20s, so it's not like I'm a teenager with parents who will kick me out or anything. So that's good, but um, it would just alter a lot of the – dynamics of my social circles and it would cause a lot of upheaval in my life if I decided to pursue that while I live in this area. And again, I, I love your podcast and thank you for being such valuable voices, um, to your listeners. Thanks.
1: Thank you for calling in. This is a really heavy question. Um, what I will say is I feel like Our safety is the most important thing in life, especially in this new, you know, Trump's America world. So I feel like if you don't feel safe, you know, expressing the fact that you are bisexual to your friends or the people in your town, it's probably best for you not to do that. Um, I just would not want you to be in a situation where, you know, you're sort of endangered, you know, and I understand that you said you're in your mid-20s and you're not in a situation where your parents might kick you out, but, you know, any sort of violence from someone in your life could be harmful, and I think that I would posit you're old enough to go on a vacation um, if you can afford it. Um, I think vacations are great self-care. If you sort of visited a bigger city that you were planning to move to and met women there or, you know, visited a gay bar in that city and just sort of see, you know, sort of a clear vision of a place that you can move to that'll be much safer for you. I think that that is a great option for you to pursue you know also the internet exists so if you need to get um tinder pro or whatever and swipe with people in other cities and talk to them about it you know and make sure that you know people can't see you in your area you're just talking to them online in a different city i think that that could be very helpful too because you know speaking with other people um daily or you know, every few days who know what it's like and what you're going through would probably be very helpful to you um, so you don't feel completely boxed in.
2: I think that's such like really that's really sensitive advice Ira and I don't really have that much to add to it. You know I would say that Often in towns that have a predominant kind of like political allegiance, there are people who are like you, you know, who are looking for safe places to feel like they can just be themselves. And I don't know if there's a kind of channel, maybe it's Internet based or, you know, maybe you have that one friend who knows other people that could kind of get you within that fold because... As much as you have to think about your physical safety, you also have to think about your own like spiritual and mental health. And, you know, talking to people online can do a lot, but it's always great to be able to talk to people in the flesh and in person. So I would say if you have even, of an, even an inkling of someone that you can reach out to safely, I would reach out to that person and then try and create a network to sustain you while you know you move towards making that big move
1: thank you so much for um calling in though um and please if you have any other questions feel free to call back or reach out on twitter um you know you can find me at ira and you know i would love to talk if you need to If you would like some feedback from me or Doreen, our number is 424-354-9335. Once again, that number is 424-354-9335. So I'm going to have to go, Doreen. Um, I have a midnight train to Georgia that I am going to be taking for... Um, Wei Chu is on the train as well. I think we're gonna sit there and have a good long chat.
2: I feel like one day I will feel bad for Wei Chu, but today's not that day.
1: <laughs> like like what day?
2: <laughs> All right, boo. I will talk to you soon. Have fun on the train. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
1: This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Michael Catano, James D. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasha Mahalowicz for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you can find your favorite podcasts.